0: Samuel 25, making our way through the book of Samuel, chapter 25, tonight, Romans 12, 21 says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil by good, you ever thought about that verse, that's a hard lesson for us to learn, isn't it, nobody here would naturally, naturally react that way. Not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And this is the lesson that David is learning at the time in his life that we're looking at this. First Samuel 24 last week, we saw David had the opportunity to kill Saul, the man who's trying to kill him, king of Israel. But David wouldn't even consider the possibility of killing Saul. He said, no, I'm not going to lift my hand against the Lord's anointed. No way would I do that. And then in chapter 25 tonight, there's going to be a second test for David, and again, David must wait upon the Lord and learn not to take matters into his own hands. And this is the same lesson we're repeatedly learning, apparently, throughout all of our lives. We're going to see this three chapters in a row, as a matter of fact, the same idea. Tonight we're going to witness how the Lord uses believers to intervene in the lives of others in order to overcome evil with good. Others are going to come in and intervene in behalf of David. But before we do that, we've got to stop and pay tribute to the death of God's prophet, that's in the first verse, chapter 25, verse 1. The death of God's prophet it says there. Then Samuel died, and all Israel gathered together and mourned for him, and buried him at his house in Ramoth, and David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Now this is just a pit stop, almost a side note before we go on to the rest of the chapter and what's, what it's really teaching. But you here have this obituary, in verse one doesn't say much. It just says Samuel died, and I feel like, you know, as I come to this, you know, when you read through the Bible and you get to know characters, I feel like we should stop and take off our hats and have a memorial service for Samuel right now, because this guy is such an influential man of God, and uh, he was a great man in Israel. Everybody was at the funeral, by the way, except for probably David. I don't think Saul would have been too happy to have David at that funeral, and according to this, this verse, David goes down further south into the desert of Paran, from where he had been, which was in Gedi, that oasis we saw last week. And so, you have this, this funeral here. Samuel is one of the greatest prophets that Israel ever had. And he's also the last judge. He spent a long time going through the judges. The last judge Israel had. And it marks the end of an error. But it shows what kind of a God-glorifying life we can live if we're obedient to the Lord. Um, and I wish I could spend more time on him, but we can't because it's a long chapter, 44 verses, so we've got to stop our memorial service and go on. Secondly, let's look at the way of a fool in verses 2 to 13. The way of a fool. It says in verse 2, There was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich, and he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And it came about when, while he was shearing his sheep in Carmel that now the man's name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. And the woman was intelligent and beautiful in appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his dealings, and he was a Calebite. Now David heard in the wilderness that Nabal Nabal was shearing shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, visit Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say, Have a long life. Uh, Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. Now I have heard that you have shears." Now your shepherds have been with us, and we have not insulted them, nor have they missed anything all the days they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on a festive day. Please, give whatever you find at hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in David's name. Then they waited. Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David, and who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants today who are each breaking away from his master. Shall I, then, shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have slaughtered for my shears and give it to men whose origin I do not know? So David's young men retraced their way and went back, and they came and told him according to all these words. David said to his men, Each of you gird on his sword. So each man girded on his sword, and David also girded on his sword. And about 400 men went up behind David while 200 stayed behind with the baggage. Now, we've hardly left the funeral of a godly prophet, Samuel, when in the next verse we are introduced to a fool, a foolish man. He is living in a place called Maon. He conducted his business about a mile north of there in a place called Carmel. And note the very first bit of information we're given about this man. It says in verse 2 his business is in Carmel. He's very rich. He's got 3,000 sheep, he's got 1,000 goats. Now we don't even know this guy's name yet. Usually when characters in the Bible are introduced, a lot of times they're introduced, or you think they're gonna have their name, but the first thing we hear about this guy is uh, he's a rich guy. Uh, this is where the spotlight is on his on, on Nabal, his possessions, first and foremost. And that's what Nabal is all about, we're gonna find out. The second bit of information listed is his name. His name means, means is, is Nabal, which means fool. Now when we say his name means fool, we're not talking about someone who's intellectually, intellectually deficient. He's not stupid as such. He is rather morally deficient. He's spiritually bankrupt is what the term means. He's godless man. He's deficient in his character. And so he's called fool. One writer said the word fool implies viciousness, atheism, and materialism. And that sounds like Nabal as we get, to go, as we get through this chapter more. Now, it's interesting because later on, David will write Psalm chapter 14, which uh, Justin read earlier. Psalm 14, verse 1, it says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And that's the same Hebrew word he uses here, which is Nabal. We're American, Nabal, but actually we, we've Americanized all the Hebrew words, so we call it Nabal. And it's translated fool. So you could say in Psalm 14:1, Nabal has said in his heart, there is no God. And he'd have the same idea. And it's true of Nabal. Since he does not recognize that there is a God in this world, it's only natural that he becomes a ruler of his own life. And you're going to see that as we go through the chapter. Nabal rules his own life, not God. His wife is mentioned next. Her name is Abigail. Now, note the difference between Abigail and Nabal. It says here in verse 2, that in verse 3, the woman was intelligent. And the 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 idea that, what what the the word means is she was good of understanding, not that she was just smart intellectually, brilliant. She was good of understanding. She was a woman of insight, a woman of good sense. In other words, she had common sense from God. She was wise. She was discerning. It's more than being intellectual. You know, there's people that are intellectual in the world, some even geniuses, that don't even know how to come in in out of the rain. But this is not Abigail. Abigail is wise. Is what she is she has this wisdom from God and she's also beautiful it says on the other hand you have Nabal who's harsh and evil in his dealings now the fact of the matter is today if he was around we would say he was a jerk that's what people would use that's the word people would use to describe him and we've all had known people like this no doubt maybe a boss or I don't know why I think of bosses but maybe a a neighbor or maybe an employee you're a boss out there and you have an employee like this or have had and we've all seen people like this. He was harsh. He was severe in how he dealt with people. He was obstinate. Uh, he was not exactly a fun-living guy to be around. You didn't want to be around, hang around. Let's go hang around Nabal. Nobody said that. He was a guy that people didn't enjoy being around. And it says here his deeds, his dealings. Literally, he was evil of deeds. His deeds were evil. The things that he practiced in his life were evil. So this is not a good man. This is not a man that knows the Lord. This is not a man that serves the Lord. In fact, his main interest in life is serving himself. But he does have one redeeming quality, and that is, it says here, he was a Calebite. Now, that's a famous clan in Judah. Do you remember a man by the name of Caleb? Uh, there, was two, there was 12 spies that were sent out from Israel to the spy out the land of Canaan. and Two of those men, <clears throat> Joshua and Caleb, were godly men. They followed the Lord. And it says of Caleb that he was a man who wholly followed the Lord. Remember that phrase used of Caleb in the Bible? He wholly followed the Lord his God. Now Nabal was a descendant of his, but Nabal was not like Caleb. Nabal was not a man who wholly followed the Lord, in fact, he didn't follow him at all. He had nothing to do with the Lord. And just because Caleb's descendants—this uh, was Caleb's descendant—does not guarantee Nabal a place in heaven, because salvation is an individual matter. Everyone must trust the Lord on their own uh, for, for themselves. It's not something that—it's not a group effort. Or because I have a heritage of some kind. That heritage won't score, score me any points with the Lord at all. It doesn't matter if my grandfather and father and everybody else was a preacher. I've got to come to the Lord myself as God draws me to himself. Now, obviously this marriage is a mismatch. I wouldn't exactly say this is a marriage made in heaven. Uh, it may have been a prearranged marriage. But when you, as you read this chapter, you're going to say to yourself, Wow, lucky Abigail. <laughs> she got to marry a real creep, quite frankly. She did. And you're going to see it as we go along. But we're warned again, by way of example, uh, on how, you know, who you, when you're, if you're considering marriage, be very careful who you decide to marry. Very careful who you decide to marry. It's a very important decision. You don't want to end up with a, a nabal. And ladies, if you're considering marriage, please don't consider a guy who treats you badly right now, or is hurt, hurtful or even violent. Do not marry that man. And, and so, we, we're, we're given an example again of, of marriage here, as we've, we've seen earlier in 1 Samuel. Well, in the meantime, while this is going on, David is, David here is at Nabal, sharing his sheep. Now, that was a, a big deal, sharing the sheep. It happened once a year normally, sometimes twice a year. It's a very festive time. You can compare it to uh, farmers who were harvesting their crops in Israel. Big time for them, festive time. They would get the wool from the sheep. They'd sell it for a profit. And that's how he made his money. And so they'd have a festival during his time. Nabal was a wealthy man. He didn't hold, he could throw a big party. He knew how to throw a party. We're going to see that later on. And he's very wealthy, and he didn't hold back. He's got plenty of food, plenty of supplies. He wanted for nothing at all. And so David uh, is, is out there in the wilderness near his area. But David's got a big concern he lives with constantly, and that is this. He's got 600 men he's responsible for in the desert. Now, if you thought about this? How do you feed 600 men in the desert on a regular basis? What do you do for a job out there? Well, one way is by protecting the property of local landowners. That's one way you can do it. You become a security to local landowners. David and his men had become a security force for Nabal's shepherds out there and for their their livestock. He had 3,000 sheep, 1,000 goats, and shepherds who watched over the livestock. And for some time now, David and his men had watched over these guys out in the desert made sure no one stole their sheep or goats. Uh, they allowed no one to cause harm to the shepherds. Um, Nabal didn't have any worries while David and his men acted as a security force. You don't want to go up against David, the great warrior, and his 600 men, by the way. It's the last thing you want to do. And so, But this does not seem to be a prearranged deal with Nabal. I, this is not something that David prearranged in advance. He just took over. as a a security and begin to guard the flocks. But Nabal benefited from his protection. They benefited greatly. Can you imagine a a group of 600 outlaws, and basically these are outlaws not on the run from Saul, out in the desert? I mean, these guys could take advantage of any situation they wanted to. They could wreak havoc on somebody's ownership. They could steal sheep and goats and all this. But they didn't do that. So David sends ten of his young men, to Nabal and he says, greet them in my name. Now everybody should know who David is. We've talked about David for some time in 1 Samuel. We'll find out later that Nabal's wife knew all about David. She knew who he was. And so David has his men go in the authority of his name and and to make a request of Nabal. And, And the greeting, as you can see in verse six, is very cordial. Three times David instructs them with the word peace, peace be to the household of Nabal. He does not approach Nabal with the evil intent. He doesn't have wrong motives. Uh, he's very kind to him. And he says, look, tell you guys tell Nabal that we've been out there guarding his flocks this whole time for a long time now. Uh, you get the impression it's been a good while and that we've done nothing to insult the shepherds. We've taken none of their livestock. In fact, we've protected them the whole time. How about you compensate us for, some, for all this good we've done to you? That's what David asking for, compensation. For what we've done, whatever you have on hand, I think it's in verse, uh, the end of verse 8, please give whatever you find at hand to your servants and to your son David. He even called himself Nabal's son. In other words, a a term of endearment, trying to endear himself to Nabal, to show politeness to him, humility. And what is Nabal's answer? In verse 10, he says, who is David and who is the son of Jesse? As far as I'm concerned, he's just another runaway slave. There's an epidemic of that going on around here anyway. You know that, right? I don't, I don't know who he is and I don't care who he is. I'm no under obligation under no obligation to, to come to his aid at all. I, I'm not, I don't need to help him. That's his attitude. In verse 11, he says, "Shall I look at you think he uses seven personal pronouns here and you'll get an impression of what Nabal is all about. Shall I then take my bread, my water, my meat that I have slaughtered for my shears and give it to men? I don't even know where they're from. I don't know who you guys are. And you want me to take my stuff, my property? This is mine, you know, and help you guys out? Not going to do it. Now, whose bread and water was it? Whose shears were they? Were they Nabal's? Well, technically it was true, but Nabal never considered the fact that his wealth was from the Lord. As his own law says in Deuteronomy 8.18, it says, You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you the power to make wealth. God gave Nabal the power to make wealth, to get this wealth, to get this property, to accumulate these, uh, li- this livestock. It was all because God allowed it. It was in his providence that this happened. He didn't even consider the common grace that God had shown to him. He didn't thank God for any of this. He didn't even care about God at all. He, his opinion, he didn't need the Lord. He wasn't going to share with anyone. That's how he felt about it all. And he, go, he went against his own law again, which says, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Second greatest commandment in the Old Testament. He didn't love his neighbor as himself. He did love himself. He didn't love his neighbor, though. He had part of this right, maybe. But his attitude was like that of Cain in Genesis 4. Remember Cain said, am I my brother's keeper? And that's how Nabal thought. He didn't care about the needs of others, didn't consider the needs of others, only thought about what he was doing. He reminds me of the rich man. I thought about the rich man in Luke 12 as I was looking at this. Let me read that to you. Luke 12, verse 16, that parable Jesus told. And he says, uh, he, he told him a parable saying the land of a rich man was very productive. He began reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I shall do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul. He's not considering God at all. He's talking to himself now and because he is his God. I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. How did he know that? Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. He calls him a fool in Luke 12. And so I thought of Nabal, and I I thought of the rich man when I was looking at this. Nabal was not rich toward God. Nabal was not rich toward people. Nabal was not about to help David or his men. He doesn't even observe the common ancient Near Eastern practice of hospitality. Israel was all about hospitality. Show hospitality to people. Remember the guy even in Judges, who when the the, the Levite and his uh, the girl he was with, they had to stay outside the city, and the guy came in from the fields of Ephraim, and he says, hey, what are you guys doing out here? Come to my house. I'll put you up for the night. Hospitality. They showed it all the time, but... Not Nabal, he's not going to show any hospitality. So he he bucks up against the scripture and the practice of hospitality in Israel. Now Nabal says he doesn't know anything about David's origin. Seriously? Was he the only one in Israel that didn't know about David? I mean, everybody knew about David. Uh, Everybody knew that David had slain Goliath. That was front page news. It was something that everybody knew. After the slain of Goliath, remember in chapter 18, verse 6, it says the women out after David had killed Goliath. The women came out of all all the cities of Israel, all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul. They said they sang that famous song. And I told somebody to write a rap of. I still haven't seen the rap song on this one. There's only two lines to it. <laughs> Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. That's it. That was the song they sang. All the cities of Israel knew about this. Even in the down in the desert, it says in chapter 18, verse 16. They should have known because it says all Israel and Judah loved David, and he came out before them, went in went out before them. And Nabal lived, guess where, in Judah. He, of course he knew about David. And you're going to find out later that Abigail definitely knows about him. And so, was David overstepping his bounds? Did he have the right to receive payment for services rendered, even though there was no prearranged deal for this at all? There was not a job that Nabal had prearranged with him to guard his possessions. Now, there are some Bible scholars who think that David practiced an early form of the mafia. They called it the mafiosa. I'm serious. I read this. Some have said, yeah, extortion. Some have said that he was a terrorist, even, that these are terrorist actions. He offered protection, and he demanded protection money in return, some people think. But I hardly think that. That's not how David operated. Have we seen David's character all this time now, he was very unselfish. You remember when he was a fugitive? He's still a fugitive. Back in 22, chapter 22, uh, his parents come down to him, and he stops everything he's doing. Stops his running from Saul and takes them all the way to Moab, and puts and gets them set up so they're cared for Moab in another country, so they don't they're not hurt by Saul at all. He shows his care for his parents. He delivers the city of Caleb from the Philistines when that was Saul's job to do. We saw that too. He takes his time out, and God says, "Go deliver the city." He does. Saves the entire city from Philistines. And now he's simply trying to feed and care for his 600 men. David's an unselfish guy. He's not trying to extort anything from anybody. He's just He had done a serious job. And we'll find out a little bit that, about that later on. And Nabal had greatly benefited from David's protection. He really had. Under, his, under David's leadership, not only were his men not allowed to go take advantage of Nabal's flock, but they were good to Nabal's men. They were good to them, and that's, and they did good for them. Look at verse 15. We're going to see this later on. Yet the men, he's talking about David's men, the men were very good to us, David's men. They were good to Nabal's men. And we were not insulted, nor did we miss anything, as long as we went about with them while we were in the fields. They were very good to us. Now, that's the kind of testimonies that all believers should have. Galatians 6.10 says, while we have opportunity, let us good, do good to all people, especially those of the household of faith. You know, a believer is supposed to be salt in this world, right? And light in this world, because it's engulfed in spiritual darkness. And so, believers like David come along, and they do good for people. And we should do good for people. God's people are the ones that can make the difference. Only ones that can make the difference, as the Spirit of God works through them. And so, they make the difference by pointing people to the Lord, and by giving the gospel out, by doing good to people. It says in the gospels, Jesus went about doing what? Doing good, it says. By showing kindness and love to people. And by helping meet tangible needs and this is the kind of thing that the people of God do on a, we should do on a regular basis but the problem is it's never easy dealing with foolish people is it Proverbs 12 15 says the way of a fool is right in his own eyes a fool thinks he's always right he doesn't take counsel from anybody at all even though in, in, in multitude of counselors there is safety he doesn't care about the multitude of counselors he's not interested in what anybody else thinks He's only interested in what he thinks because he is his own counselor. And he looks to himself for all his, what he wants. He does what he wants. No regard for God, no regard for man. This describes Nabal to a T. But you know, when you think about it, apart from Christ, we are all fools, aren't we? We're fools apart from Christ. We're all evil like Nabal was apart from Christ. And the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, 1 Corinthians 1. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so, the Lord can save foolish people. In fact, oftentimes He does. He saves the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, right? 1 Corinthians 1 again. And He makes them wise in Christ. The Lord can take foolish people who are bent on a path of destruction and take them and make them wise in Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.30, it says, But by the, Lord's doing, by the Lord's doing, you are in Christ Jesus. God saves us, right? It's His salvation is of the Lord. By His doing, you're in Christ Jesus, who became to us what? wisdom from God along with sanctification and righteousness he became to us wisdom from God so there is hope for people like Nabal who are fools and lost in this world and that hope is only found in Christ but David's men returned and they informed him that Nabal refused to give him anything at all in exchange for this great service he had rendered to them of protection how did David react well I can tell you it was not by overcoming evil with good look at verse 13 Here's his response. He doesn't say anything when he hears this news. He says, except for this, each of you gird on his sword. So each man girded on his sword, and David also girded on his sword. And about 400 men went up behind David, while 200 stayed behind with the baggage. He, gets, he says, get your sword on, we're going to battle. He puts his sword on, all the men put their sword on. They have the full intent of going to and marching to Nabal's property and wiping all of those guys out. They're going to wipe him out. This is such a quick and rash reaction by David, isn't it? He doesn't even think twice about it, what he's going to do. He doesn't even hesitate. He's going to pay back Nabal the way, and treat him the way he's being treated, he feels like. Now, think Think back to chapter 24. We, we covered it last week. Saul entered a cave in En-Gedi, and in that cave are 600 men with David inside, and Saul's all by himself, he comes in there. He didn't have a clue that David and his men were in there. And he's he's in there, he's relieving himself, it says, and David has got this golden opportunity to take out Saul, to kill the man who's trying to kill him constantly. And he and what does he do? Look at chapter twenty, verse four, verse six. It says there David says, Far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, since he is the Lord's anointed. Now that was the attitude the Lord wanted David to have, and he didn't call, kill Saul, and he didn't allow his men to kill Saul either, it says in that chapter, and they wanted to, and they tried to talk David into killing him. Now we're not going to do that, this is the Lord's anointed, we're not going to put up our let, raise our hand against the Lord's anointed. That's what happened in chapter 24. But in chapter 25, Nabal refuses to compensate, compensate David for a job he never even asked him to do, and David is now ready to put him to death. So now I ask you the question, who is acting like a fool? Who's acting like a fool now? David is. He's willing to spare the king of Israel, but he can't wait to kill Nabal. A.W. Pink said this, No man stands a moment longer than divine grace upholds him. No man, no woman, stands a a moment longer than divine, divine grace upholds that person. We need grace for each new day. Each new day. It's a good thing that you walk with God yesterday. That's great. But guess what? There's new temptations today, new challenges today, new trials today. You better be walking with God today. Now look at verses 21 and 22. This is what David was thinking. We'll, We'll jump ahead a little bit. Verse 21. David had said, Surely in vain I have guarded all this man has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned to me, what? Evil for good. He's returned to me evil for good. May God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave as much as one male of of any who belong to him. So David's thinking this, Nabal has returned to me evil for good. I've done all this good for him. I've protected him. And no doubt, you get the impression from the the, the repeated references to things have not been missing while David and his men were guarding them, that had David and his men not been out there guarding the flocks, that surely something would have gone missing. That maybe other thieves would have stolen things along the way. I really believe David did Nabal a tremendous service. That he couldn't even, he probably could not compensate him, overcompensate him enough for, as a matter of fact. But he says, Nabal has returned to me evil for good. Therefore, basically I'm going to do evil to him. But the Lord says, what did the Lord say in Deuteronomy 32, 35? He says this vengeance is mine. It's mine in retribution. Verse 36, the Lord will vindicate his people. Well, when people wrong us, we're really quick to set the record straight, aren't we? He did me wrong. I'm going to do him wrong now. You get this feelings of, of, of rising within you, of getting even, and you say, it's payback time. Huh, I'm going to pay back. But that's when we need to learn to turn it over to the Lord and give it to him. You know, there's many Nabals out there in, our, out there in the world. We've seen them. We've come across them. Have you ever come across those people like that? And they're evil people, and they, and we may have done them good, and they do us evil, but spirit-filled people will, when they're reviled, they won't revile again, as it says of Jesus in 1 Peter. So it looks like the Lord is teaching David a, a full course on this subject. 20, chapter 24 was Lesson 1. Chapter 25 is Lesson 2. This is the way of a fool here in the first part of this chapter. Secondly, the way of wisdom in verses 14 and 35, the way of wisdom. Now, in these verses, there are two people who show wisdom from God to prevent a tragedy from happening, namely David killing all the males of Nabal. One is an unnamed young man, and the other is Abigail. The young, the young man whose unnamed is passed over too quickly, but he's very important. Let's first of all look at the wisdom of a young man, verse 14. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Behold, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he scorned them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we were not insulted. Nor did we miss anything as long as we went about with them while we were in the fields. They were a wall to us, both by night and by day, all the time we were with them tending the sheep. Now therefore know and consider what you should do, for evil is plotted against our master and against all his household. And he, Nabal, is such a worthless man, no one can speak to him. This young man was a servant of Nabal. He knew all about Nabal. He knew about his character. He knew how he treated people. He knew all that because he worked for the guy, basically. And he figures the only one that can do anything about this is his wife, Abigail. None of us can talk to the guy because you can't talk to him. And so he says, he tells Abigail, look, I want you to know David sent messengers. And then the NASB says in verse 14, to greet our master. Actually, the word is bless. David came to bless Nabal, by the way, literally. And, David, and he came with goodwill, and it says here, but our master scorned them. And actually that word has a lot, a much more stronger intent than the word scorn. It literally means he screamed at them. When he, ESV says he railed at them, but literally he screamed at them. When, when David's men came and tried to make a request of Nabal, he screamed at them. That's how fools treat civilized people, by the way. Have you ever met people like this? I have. <laughs> Trust me. I have dealt with people like this. But the testimony of the young men is this. Look, we've been treated well by David's men. They didn't treat us badly at all. Now, there's something interesting going on here in verses 15 and 16 that gives us a little clue that this was not just David's men forcing themselves on on Nabal's men to do a job. There's something else going on here, a little more interesting. Look at verse 15. It says, um, we didn't miss anything. Everything was great as long as we went about with them while we were in the fields, We went about with them. Verse 16, they were a wall to us. In other words, they offered us round-the-clock protection all the time, all the days, literally, we were with them, tending the sheep. Kind of sounds like Nabal's men realized this was a great blessing. We're out here doing this job of watching over the flocks and all, and all of a sudden we have these 600, basically, you know, David's gonna train these guys to be soldiers, right, he's such a great warrior. And these guys are watching over us, they're protecting us. And so they willingly followed them around. David was a shepherd anyway in his past. He knew what he knew where to take them anyway to to graze and so on and so forth. But these guys were shepherds, they knew as well. But nevertheless, it says we went with them. And I'm sure Nabal's men, after looking at this, were very happy, more than happy to have David and his men around. In verse 17, the young men warns Abigail of what's going to happen. David's coming to kill everybody. And then he adds this about her husband. You know, he's such a worthless man, no one can even speak to him. Now, would you like to? Here's a guy who basically is an employee of Nabal, and he tells his wife, You know, your husband's worthless, basically. You can't even talk to the guy. <laughs> I mean, he won't listen to the voice of reason, even. And there's people that are like that. They just, you can't talk to some people, they won't listen to anything that's reasonable at all. <clears throat> now, this young man is not to be overlooked in this chapter. He's the starting point of all this turnaround right here. If it weren't for him, there would have been no further intervention. Abigail didn't know about this. This young man intervenes. Now, young men are not normally noted for their wisdom, are they? When we're making decisions in our church, we don't say, let's look to the teenagers of our church to find out what they think. We don't do that. But they can be, they can learn, they can learn the wisdom of God if their parents teach them to fear the Lord, right? Because the fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of wisdom, right? And so... We have a young man's wisdom here. Secondly, we have the wisdom of Abigail. It's in verses 18 and 35, the wisdom of Abigail. Let's look at verses 18 and 22. It says, Then Abigail hurried and took 200 loaves of bread and two jugs of wine, fine sheep already prepared, five sheep, and five measures of roasted grain and a 100 clusters of raisins, 200 cakes of figs, and loaded them on donkeys. She said to her young men, Go on before me, behold, I am coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. That's surprising. It came about as she was riding on her donkey that coming down to, uh, and coming down by the hidden part of the mountain that, behold, David and his men were coming down toward her, so she met them. And David had said, Surely in vain I have guarded all that this man has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he's returned evil for good to me. May God do so and more to the enemies of David, and if, if by morning I leave as much as one male of any who belong to him. So Abigail is a wise woman. We've seen this already. Unlike her husband, who's a foolish man. What a match, right? She hurries to go get supplies, and she hurries to go get food, and so David and his men can eat, because as we all know, a hungry man is a what? A desperate man, right? Sandy, is that true? She always says a hungry man is a desperate man. I think she's talking about me. So she enlists the help of her young men, and but guess who she doesn't tell? She doesn't tell Nabal. Why? Because you know good and well he's not going to listen to this plan in a million years, Right? not going to go along with this at all. Does that mean, the question is raised by the way, is she is an unsubmissive wife at this point? Well, I don't think she's trying, she's unsubmissive because I think she's trying to keep Nabal and the entire household from being killed. So I'm gonna let her pass on this one. <laughs> Abigail intervenes in this case. And by the way, this is another providential act of God. How many times we've we seen this? I heard Tim say in Sunday school, As he reads the Old Testament, he keeps seeing providence of God again and again on just about every page, and that's true. And here we see another providential act of God, and he's using Abigail to intervene in this case. And watch how she intervenes. Look at verse 23. First of all, she humbles herself. Verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and dismounted from her donkey and fell on her face before David and bowed herself to the ground. She humbled herself, and this humility is going to prepare the way for David to listen. Secondly, she places the blame on herself. Verse 24, she fell at his feet and said, On me lo- alone, my Lord, be the blame. And please let your maidservant speak to you and listen to the words of your maidservant. She blames herself. She has no fault at all in this. She just heard about this. She didn't even know about this earlier. And now she's blaming herself. She's willing to step in the middle of this mess and clear it up, whatever it takes. Because she's so unselfish. And because she's wise. She knows the Lord. She knows the Lord. And then thirdly, she apologizes for her husband's behavior. I love verse 25. By the way, this is my life's verse, verse 25. Please do not let my Lord pay attention to this worthless man, Nabal. For as his man, so is he. For as his name is, so is he. It's not really my life verse. Nabal is his name, and folly is with them, but I, your maidservant, did not see the young man of my, young men of my Lord whom you sent. I wasn't there when the young men were sent. I didn't know what was going on. But please, please help us here and excuse us because. The fact of the matter is my husband is a fool. He's a worthless man. And so she tells him this. Is that being unsubmissive? Well, I think she was telling the truth. She was being honest with him. The fact of the matter is he was a worthless man. And this, earlier the servant had called him the same thing. In verse 17, everybody knew it. It wasn't a secret. You know, people know your character, by the way. They know who you are because, by the way, you behave in, in your workplace or your home or your Office or your school or wherever you're at, people know who we are. They know by our behavior how how we act. They know who we are. Everybody knows. Fourthly, she reminds him that it is the Lord who held him back from a revenge. Look at verse 26. Now, therefore, my lord, as the Lord lives, <coughs> as your soul lives, since the Lord has restrained you, who who restrained? The Lord has restrained you from shedding blood, and from avenging yourself by your own hand. Now then, let your enemies and those who seek evil against my lord be his Nabal She restrained. He restrained. David, because he had Abigail come and intervene. So the providence of God again is seen as he's working through Abigail. And then she seeks to make things right. Look at verse 27. Now let this gift which your maidservant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who accompany my Lord. Please forgive the transgression of your maidservant. She didn't do anything wrong. And yet she's asking for forgiveness. It reminds me of Daniel in chapter 9. Daniel didn't sin, the nation had, and Daniel's praying that God will forgive we and us, of our sins. And so this is more unselfishness. And then she speaks well of David's future. Verse 28, again, in the middle of 28, For the Lord will certainly make my Lord an enduring house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil will not be found in you all your days. Should anyone rise up to pursue you and seek your life, then the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God, but the lives of your enemies he will sling out it's from the hollow of a sling. She speaks of David's enduring house. Now, that's interesting, because later on in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God will prophesy to David the same thing. He's going to say in 2 Samuel 17, uh, six, or 7, verse 16, the Davidic covenant, by the way, he's going to say to him, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me. This makes Abigail kind of prophetic here. and What she's saying is very true. She says, The Lord's going to protect you, David. He's going to keep you alive, but your enemies he's going to sling out, just like, a sling, like you would throw a stone with a sling. Guess who knew about that? David knew all about the sling and the stone, right? She used that illustration. He's going to sling him out just like you would throw a stone out of a sling. He's going to do that to your enemies. And then seventh, she warns David of the consequences of his actions had he carried him out. In verse 30, when the Lord does for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and appoints you ruler over Israel, it's going to happen one day, This will not cause grief or a troubled heart to my Lord, both by having shed blood without cause, and by my Lord having avenged himself. When the Lord does well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. He says, one day, David, you're going to be the king. Everybody knows it. There's no reason for you to shed blood right now. It's going to be a huge mistake. You're going to regret it because you're going to have a troubled heart, she says. If you do this thing, you're going to live with a troubled heart. Now, you remember back in chapter 24 when David cut the the piece of the robe off Saul's... uh, off Saul's robe he cut a piece off it said David's conscience bothered him just that little act of cutting the robe he didn't kill Saul he just cut the robe off that bothered him can you imagine how this would have weighed on his conscience had he done this senseless slaughter and kill all these people later on and so she says wait a minute David think ahead. think about this if you do this thing right now you're gonna regret this and you're gonna have a guilty conscience because what sin brings a guilty conscience right we sin later on it bothers us because we know we've sinned against God and Abigail's trying to prevent David from having the guilty conscience when he's a king later on. This is some great intervention. David's grateful for this intervention. He's thankful for it. So much so that he uses the word the, the word blessed three times and responding to her, look at verse 32. Verse 32, he says, David said to Abigail, Blessed, number one, blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. He sent you to meet me. This is God, again, behind all this. And they both, Abigail and David, recognize the providence of God in this. And then verse 33, and blessed number two, blessed be your discernment. <clears throat> blessed be your discernment, your wisdom. God's given you wisdom to know how to handle things. And and by the way, isn't the wisdom of Abigail obvious? And do you know one of the traits of the of the Proverbs 31 woman is wisdom? It says in verse uh, in, in Proverbs 31, she opens her mouth with wisdom, right? When, when the Proverbs 31 woman, the woman that loves God and is, is what she should be, that woman opens her mouth with wisdom. And this and that prevents a catastrophe, by the way, and it will here. And then thirdly, the third blessed in verse 33, blessed be your discernment. Second, thirdly, blessed be you, Abigail, who have kept me from this day from bloodshed and from avenging myself by my own hand. I was going to do it, and you kept me from it. Nevertheless, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from harming you, Unless you had come quickly to meet me, surely there would have not been left in Nabal until the morning light as much as one male. So David received from her hand what she had brought to him and said to her, Go up to your house in peace, see I have listened to you and granted your request. I mean, Abigail's intervention turns everything around. She's the instrument of God. Blessed be you, David says. She's God's instrument to to intervene in this crisis situation and, and help him out. And she she redirects David's focus to the Lord. David's not thinking about the Lord right now. He's thinking about killing people. But seven times in verses 26 to 31, she says the word Yahweh or Lord. Seven times, David, (laughs) remember the Lord, right? This is about the Lord. Think about the Lord. And David admits, I would have carried out my plan to kill people had you not intervened." You know, the Lord can use his people to intervene in the lives of others who are on a path of destruction, on an evil course. And the Lord may have placed in your path, in your path, in my path, certain people. He wants us to intervene in their lives. He wants us to tell them the gospel. He wants us to tell, to point them to Christ. He wants to use our wisdom, the wisdom he's given us, to redirect their lives. God's people are the only ones that can do this as God uses them. So we need to be willing to be used of the Lord to intervene in the lives of people, to help them out as they go on their course of destruction. And You see this all the time. And the way of wisdom can only be shown people who know god's wisdom and that's believers and then fourthly look at the vengeance of god in verses 36 to 39 the vengeance of god <clears throat> verse 36 then abigail came to nabal and behold he was holding a feast in his house i told you this guy could throw a party he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king no holding back and nabal's heart was merry within him for he was very drunk so he didn't she did not tell him anything at all until the morning light But in the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him all these things and his heart died within him so that he became as a stone. And about ten days later the Lord struck Nabal and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from evil. The Lord has also returned the evil doing of Nabal on his own head. Well, it looks like Nabal's acting like a king here, right? He's He was a king, in a way, the king of his own life. He considered himself a king. He's trying to act like a king, and he throws this big party, and it's because it's sheep-shearing time, very festive occasion. That's what they did. And he gets drunk. Abigail wanted to tell him what events had transpired, how she had intervened and all that, and I'm sure he's going to be overjoyed about that situation. But she doesn't tell him because he's drunk. He's not going to understand what's going on anyway. You can't talk to a drunk. I tried tried to talk to a drunk guy one time and talked to him about the gospel. He didn't know what I was talking about. But the next day, he's sober. next day, he's sober, and she does tell him, and he's so hard-hearted, and he's so hateful, and he's so stubborn, and he's so mean-spirited that when he hears the news, his heart dies within him. Like, this is the worst thing you could have told me. Seriously, you did this? You helped my enemy out, David? And his heart died within, within him, so it became as a stone. In other words, possibly he had a heart attack or a stroke or something similar, and... Maybe he was even in a coma for about ten days, and because he was still alive for ten days, but he was totally out of it, like in a coma-like situation. And, and then it says the Lord struck Nabal and he died. And how many times have we heard Mike talking about this lately, uh, with the people in Acts chapter five, Ananias and Sapphira. Um, I thought of Herod in Acts chapter twelve, and we think of Uzziah and, 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 and the kings and Chronicles and Samuel wherever he's at. And we see, we hear all these guys that are been killed by the Lord, right? Leviticus ten, another one. So the Lord struck Nabal and he died. It shows you what the Lord thought of him. The Lord will take vengeance. He will judge people. He will do it. A man who refused to acknowledge God or man is taken out by the Lord himself. In verse 39, David recognizes this. He recognizes this. the Lord has paid back Nabal for his evil. He didn't have to do it. It's not up to us to do that. It's not up to us to pay back evil to people who do us evil. That's God's business, right? Proverbs 20, 22 says, Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord, and he will save you. And David obeyed the Lord, and the Lord took it from there. And then finally, look at the wives of David. And this, you talk about an anticlimactic. The wives of David, in verses 39, see through the rest of it. It says at the end of verse 39, Then David sent a proposal to Abigail to take her as his, as his wife. She's a widow now. He proposes marriage to her. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel... <clears throat> they spoke to her saying david has sent us to you to take you as his wife she arose and bowed with her face to the ground and said behold your maid is a maid to wash the feet of my lord's servant servants then abigail quickly arose and rode on a donkey with her five maidens who attended her and she followed the messengers of david and became his wife david had also taken a henuam of jezreel and they had both became his wives now saul oh we haven't seen saul this whole chapter have we now we see him. He's up to his old tricks again. Now Saul had given Michal's daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who is from Gallim. So David proposes to Abigail. And she's, he's thinking, he had dealt with her, he thinks, hey, I think I'm going to marry this woman. And he does. And somewhere along the line, before this, he had taken Ahinoam of Jezreel as his wife. Ahinoam, Jezreel's not far away, by the way. And verse 44 says that Saul gave away David's first wife to another guy named Palti. Now if Saul can't kill David, he's going to hurt him in other ways. I know what I'll do. I'll give his wife away. He's not even here anyway. He's on the run. That's what he does. Now, this brings up a question. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, wait a minute. Is polygamy right? David had one wife, and she's kind of out of the picture, but he's still married to her. And He marries another woman, then he proposes to Abigail. So this is kind of like three wives or two at this point. Is it right? Polygamy? And we're not going to get into polygamy right now, by the way. We'll deal with that later on in another section, okay? <laughs> because I haven't got time to deal with polygamy right now. But the short answer, no, it's not right. Because God said in the beginning Genesis, what? One man marries one woman, not one man marries several wives, right? And so we know, and, and by the way, in the end, this is going to cause David great grief and great conflict. These different wives he has. And in Deuteronomy 17, says about kings who are to come in the future, don't multiply wives. Makes it very clear. David's doing the wrong thing here. But for right now, let's stick with the main point of the passage. And we'll close in a minute. But this passage says much concerning evil and our response to it, doesn't it? Look at verse 3. It says there that Nabal was evil in his dealings. Verse 17. The young man said to Abigail, Evil is plotted against our master by David. Verse 21. At the, the last phrase. David says... About Nabal, he has returned me evil for good. Verse 26, uh, at the end there, Now then, Abigail says, Let your enemies and those who seek evil against my Lord be as Nabal. Verse 28, near the end, it says, uh, Abigail says to David, Evil evil will not be found in you all your days. And verse 39, David says, Blessed be the Lord who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal, and has kept, me back, kept back his servant from evil, he says. Again and again, we see a talk about evil and how we respond to it. And how do we overcome evil when we're confronted with it? How do we do that? What do we do when others are good to us? We're good to others, and we're mistreated by them. We're wrong by them. Well, we do what Deuteronomy 32 says, as I said earlier. We wait for the Lord to vindicate his people. But it says the Lord will vindicate his people. We don't take matters in our own hands. It's not easy to do, is it? Proverbs 20, we do what that says. We don't say, I will repay evil. We wait for the Lord to save us. That's what it says to do. We do what Romans 12, 21 says. We are not overcome by evil. We overcome evil with good. And that's what we do. To do otherwise is to bring God's displeasure upon us. It's to bring guilt upon our conscience, as it would have David, right? Now, tomorrow, you or I may encounter a situation that where we're testing this area. Or maybe this week, or maybe we'll be uh, someone else's is testing this area, and we're to, to be there for them, to help them out, to intervene in their life, to help them out, to give them wisdom, the wisdom of God so they can go the right direction. And I, and I tell you, it's just absolutely necessary that we're walking with the Lord. Every day. Not just today, tomorrow as well. Why? So God can be glorified in our response. That's why. Let's close in prayer, but let's pray the Lord will give us wisdom. To know how to help people in these situations, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this, your word tonight. We pray tonight as we have talked about this and seen it again, and yet in another chapter, we pray you'll give us wisdom to ourselves and grace ourselves to respond to evil with goodness, with the love of the Lord, loving our enemies, praying for those who persecute us. And we pray also that we can be of aid to others who are going through difficulties, that we can help them out, that we can intervene in their lives, that you will use us as a as an instrument to help them out. To, Point them to the gospel, to point them to Christ, to intervene in the lives of believers also who are in trouble. We just pray that we would be those people that would be willing to be used by you. I pray this in Christ's name tonight. Amen.